What's up, everybody? Thank you for joining us on this episode. My guest today is Newman. I'm not going to say his last name because I didn't get to do normal show prep where I ask how to pronounce their name uh, because of a storm coming through and we had technical difficulties and had to get cut short a little bit. But I really enjoy this conversation. His name is Newman. I found him on Twitter and he posts things about coronavirus papers and studies and actual stats and things that we can follow along with and learn about this virus from an unpolitical standpoint. He's unbiased in it. He just wants to learn the truth. And that's what I appreciate the most because that's where I'm coming from. And I think a lot of people will appreciate that too. If we can get our biases out of the way because we all have them and actually try to learn the honest truth about it. So I really enjoy this conversation. You'll see how he is unbiased in this and just really smart, reads a lot of papers, talks to a lot of people, talks to scientists, talks to doctors and all that good stuff. I really had a great time. I hope you enjoy this conversation as well with Newman. There's very little evidence that this is a serious threat to children understood statistically, which is the way you have to understand it if you're doing policy. Yes, you know, it's sad. One child dying is really sad. And if, if you know, God forbid, it's one of our kids, you know, we're going to be decimated. And, and God help us. I mean, and I get it. But we, we can't make policy based on statistical possibilities that are very, very, very rare. And when you look like, for example, Sweden has 1.8 million children, they kept schools open, and of those children, zero died from COVID, even if schools were open. And you look at the statistics from the U.S., from the U.K., the threat to children from COVID is very, very low. It's lower than the flu for children. It's not lower than the flu for, for adults, and certainly not for the elderly. But for whatever reason, children have it profoundly, profoundly good with respect to COVID. And so that's the first question. And I don't really see any rational debate on this. And, you know, occasionally people will try to take it in the other direction and they'll find, you know, the exception, the outlier. But again, statistically, you know, you look at Switzerland, you look at Europe. Generally, you look at the U.S., and far more people are dying, children are dying from other causes that we ignore. I mean, worldwide, 2,000 children die a day of pneumonia, and we've had, you know, 30 to 40 under 15, I think, total in the U.S. that have died from COVID. In the same period, I think we had 120 or so that died from the flu. So our approach to COVID it's just not rational if we're trying to protect our kids to protect them from COVID statistically makes no sense. It's not a sufficient threat, certainly not to warrant closing the schools. So that's kind of like my big first point is that there's really very little controversy. Closing the schools to protect children from COVID makes no sense. Now the second two questions are a little more complicated. And, you know, so children, for whatever reason, get it less. And when they do get it, it doesn't seem like they transmit it as much. And so this goes to the second question, which is what are the risks from children? And so this is relevant to understanding, you know, what, what risks will teachers face when they're around children? And then what risk 
does the community as a whole face as a result of increased transmission that'll manifest in, in say the children bringing COVID back home to their parents or just broadly spreading it. And so this question is where that South Korea paper, and am I making sense so far? Oh yeah, yeah, no. I don't, I don't wanna ramble, okay. And so, you know, there's a, it's funny, there's a bunch of, of papers on this and most of them are just guessing. And then there's one study, Iceland, where they took virus samples from several hundred people who were positive and they were able to conclusively figure out how likely are kids to give it to adults versus how likely are adults to give it to other adults or adults to give it to children. And they found it was much more likely for adults to transmit than children. And the, the chief scientist there who's running this said, it's crystal clear. And they're the only people that have done the genetic work to confirm this. And so some of these other papers are just speculating. I don't see how they can, how a good scientist would use speculation over definitive analysis out of Iceland. And so I'm convinced that the best evidence gives us assurance that children also are less likely to transmit. So the risk from children is also reduced. And there's an interesting German study where the author pointed out that, you know, having kids around is more like having a break when you apply a break to the dynamics of transmission compared with applying the accelerator. And so it seems like there are a lot of scientists who are seeing the same trend. When the, the, the scientists in the Netherlands did contact tracing, they found that children very rarely in fact, I think they trace infections back to kids zero, like none. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible for kids. What I think we take away from this, from the Netherlands, Ireland also found zero transmissions. And there's a really cool case where a kid who I think was skiing in France, no, in Switzerland, and he had COVID. He also had another uh, para-influenza virus, I believe and he was exposed to hundreds of people. He gave COVID to zero, and I believe he gave the other virus to like 60. So what's also interesting is kids do transmit other viruses, but for whatever reason, it doesn't seem like they transmit COVID very much. So I think that the consensus, when you do the real hard work of looking at the science, is that children do not play a significant role in transmission. And so they're less of a risk. It's actually safer to be around kids than other adults. And that's why in Sweden, when they compared the risk to teachers, it was a fraction of the risk that say a taxi driver had. A taxi driver had five times the risk compared with teachers who were teaching in school every day. And an interesting data point was the, the teachers for the very young kids had the same exact risk as people as teachers who were staying home. Uh, the and so generally speaking, we're seeing, we saw the same thing in the, in, when the, de uh, the was it, I think Denmark also studied 
risk to teachers, it found that teachers had lower risk than almost all other essential activities. So on point two, I think we've got great evidence. Now, you know, there are some studies that seem to suggest the opposite, but what's amazing is when you really like review them carefully, they don't, they don't really add up. It's, it's really fishy. Some of these studies are, are really bad. Where did you like, so yeah. you not being like this, not being your job to find this out. All right. What, how do you come across all these papers? Like, where do you find all these things like these studies and papers? And then you repost all of them. You can get all of those from your Twitter. In fact, if you Google your name, which, yeah. you know, before I have guests come on, you know, you Google your name and it's just rows and rows of you being cited for reposting a study on websites and everything else about coronavirus. Like if you Google your name, nothing comes up. You would think that you're a coronavirus like scientist. Yeah. I don't know, man. I will say probably I should give credit to my ex-wife. You know, she's a doctor. She's a pediatric specialist. She's at like one of the fanciest children's hospitals in the world. And, you know, uh, she's, you know, she's very, very uh, smart and educated. And, uh, you know, I definitely learned a lot from engaging with her over the years. And then I'm, I'm pretty good friends with uh, someone who's a professor of medicine uh, at Stanford. And we talk kind of daily about this stuff. Um, you know, and so there are other friends I have that I, I learn from who are doctors and scientists. And, um, you know, a lot of this stuff, too, you just kind of, like, follow the right people. And what I like to do is I follow people I disagree with. Like, I will be more zealously paying attention to people on the other side. I feel like that's the best way to learn. Because we're all, we all have confirmation bias. We're all looking for what is going to agree with us. And, and you just got to, like, fight that. And so I, I like always looking at like Andy Slavitt and, uh, you know, Eric Topol and a lot of guys on Twitter who definitely seem to be going in the other direction on a lot of these issues. And so, you know, I see their sites and, and I, I read them and, you know, share them with other scientists I know and pick their brains. Um, but yeah, man, I don't know, dude. I, it's kind of, I, I have a, you know, it's a problem I generally have is, like when I get really passionate about something, I probably overdo it. <laughs> and so that may be what's happening here. I'm just kind of, you know, and plus, honestly, I got three little kids, you know, they live with me here in Dallas and uh, you know, it breaks my heart to see what they're going through and they're blessed. They're lucky. They've got, we have resources. I can try to mitigate the pain they're going through. And I just think like, you know, I grew up, I went to public schools you know, my parents didn't have a lot of resources when I was young. And, you know, I just think about kiddos that are being denied the public school system um, for very little rational basis. And that's kind of point three, right? Is like, you know, what are the harms? So we talk about the harms of the, the virus, but we got to talk about what are the harms of shutting schools? And there's a lot of really solid research and science and, and analysis that suggests that, look, schools do more for especially vulnerable, you know, families, you know, single parents, uh, you know, 
poor communities that depend on the schools for food. Uh, and, and, you know, some whole households are not very stable. And for a lot of children, the, you know, the public school gives them an opportunity to transcend their circumstances, you know, to find a safe environment where they're stimulated, challenged. And, you know, public schools aren't perfect, but for, for a lot of kiddos, they're significantly better than what, you know, the alternative is. And to have protracted, protracted closure of the public schools seems really, really dangerous. And there's, there's actually uh, Emily Oster, who you should follow. She, she had a post about a month ago where she analyzed what's likely to happen, or actually not likely, where they, I think, literally looked at more affluent children and poorer children, and they looked at their math scores, and the difference between the two grew dramatically during the last several months of school closures. And so what, what really, like a lot of the people who don't seem to care about closures, a lot of them, dude, they got like three nannies, they're living in a mansion, you know, yeah, they don't care because their kids have more tutors and they know what to do with. And so I think there's a lot of harm here. And that's, that's something I feel very passionate about. I mean, I benefited tremendously from the public school system. And I feel like I just kind of felt a burden on my heart to speak up. And, you know, I don't know that I'm right, but, you know, I'm speaking the truth as, as best as I see it. And I, I love I love conflict and engagement. And if, if I'm wrong, you know, I, I, I'm happy to hear the other side. But I, the more I've looked into this, it, it, it's been really sad to me how this issue has been politicized. And, and I just, it, it really breaks my heart because I, I, I don't see this as politics. Yeah, I mean, and that's one thing I appreciate. That's what drew me to your side a lot is that it's all science-based stuff in there. And I don't, I can't even remember one instance of yours where you go, if the president had just did, or if the governor, or if this person on the democratic side or Republic, nothing ever leads to or ends with or in the middle is ever political. It's all literally like just about the virus. It's reactions, what the study actually found. And then you even say like, well, hold up. We can't just look at this study. We have to really look like, let's wait for more info to come in. Um, and you kind of like you look at a very honest perspective and, and then roll with the data that's provided in those papers. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm flattered that, you know, you see it that way. That's my goal is definitely, you know, I feel like when you're trying to persuade people, there's three things that count, you know, it's, it's like how, how logical you are, but number two, how clear you are. Number three, how credible you are. And, you know, I think a lot of people will focus on the logic and even the clarity, but like, you know, if, if you're too biased, if you ignore the data that goes the other way, you lose credibility. So, I mean, one thing I'm really trying hard is I'm always looking for the counter example. And I always want to focus, like I, I spent, I took a day and I read that uh, South Korea paper several times and talk to several experts about it. And I wrote up my thoughts and, you know, I try to be very objective about it. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure there are times where, where my biases 
affect me. But, you know, I'm trying on that front because I really think if you're going to make a difference, you want to you want to have the credibility, the clarity and the logic. Yeah. And, you know, what you were saying about all the like the schools and 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 the closing, this is one thing. And then the politicizing um, and you're wanting to find out real stats. That's where I'm at. I'm at a place where I want to find like the truth. I don't like, if you start leaving with something, you get super emotional about it. Like mask. I'm, I'm like, Hey, I don't know if masks work or don't work. I mean, I can use my common sense. I can have my theories. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist, but one thing, and this is the question I want answered. If you're throwing out, if we wear a mask, we will get through the curve, but there's no way to measure if people are or are not wearing masks, then how do we actually know that it's from the mask? Because we don't know who is and his isn't wearing. That's impossible to gauge. Right. No, so that's, that's fair. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. You know, the mask issue, I'm kind of in the middle as well on. I, I haven't looked at it closely. Um, and... I do think it's very difficult, though. I think your point is well taken, which is it's actually hard to know. It's hard to test the hypothesis that masks work um, in a definitive way. I think it is hard. You know, I'm open. It's funny. Most of my followers, I've noticed, are very opposed to masks. (laughs) I mean, I get like, you know, if I ever say something that's a little too pro mask, I notice I get like, hey, you know, don't, that's a face diaper. Why are you wearing a, you want us to wear face diaper? There's a lot of, you know, uh, disdain for masking. And, you know, I, I just, I don't feel that zeal that most of my followers do on the mask issue. Um, I'm trying to be a big tent on the mask issue. My, my guess, if I, if, if I was forced to take a position on masking is that the evidence on cloth kind of homemade masking is, 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 is fairly weak. Um, and we probably want to air towards higher, better quality masking, uh, other things being equal. I think everybody would agree with that. It, it doesn't seem rational to avoid improving the quality of the mask we're using cloth, you know, homemade masking. I, I don't entirely know what the evidence base is for, for that. Um, but I do think it's hard to, to deny that quality masks used well, used as they are designed, um, are likely to play a role in, in managing the disease. My guess is that the most important thing masks do is that when you get the disease, it mitigates the severity of the disease because when you acquire the infection, the, the volume, the viral load by which you acquired the infection was, was reduced through the effect of the mask. But again, this is unlike my, what I have to say about schools, I feel strongly about and I've read all the papers that I'm referencing. Uh, my thoughts on mask is just speculation from skimming stuff here and there. Uh, So, you know, I'm open to learn. I'm open to be corrected. Uh, I know there's a lot of evidence that kind of goes both ways on the masks. And I think it's probably better 
if you're pro-mask to kind of admit some of that. And honestly, I think the big argument for masking is probably a practical one, which is what's the harm? And, and, and you know, if we teach people how to use them correctly, there isn't, you know, now that said, I've seen a lot of people come back and say, oh, well, there's a lot of harm. You touch your face and if it's a cloth mask, it gets wet and then it holds the germs. You know, so there, there's, there's conflict on this. For some reason, my intuition is that it still probably makes sense to try to use quality masks and use them properly and that there's probably some benefit to doing that. And, and I think Japan is a really good example because it's really hard to explain Japan because they didn't lock down and they used a lot of masks and they had really good results. So, you know, look, that doesn't prove anything because as you said, like we don't really know what would have happened had they not used masks. Is it possible they have more natural immunity in that part of the world? It's all possible, but it's also possible that the masks made a difference because it was an intervention that they adopted and they did very, very well. In fact, I think Japan is one of the most amazing data sets in the world because it's a country that's 100 plus million and they've got about a thousand deaths. That's crazy. I mean, you know, the U.S. is, is 300 million and we're at 130 plus. New York is 20 million and they're at 30. I mean, what Japan has accomplished is breathtaking. And the fact that Japan accomplished it without a full lockdown, to me, is one of the biggest pieces of news that people should be all over. And I feel like it gets no attention. Well, that's and that was kind of my point with the mask thing. I mean, that your your uh, theory on that and what you went on just proves exactly that when you're looking at stuff, you've got to look at it honestly. Like we don't know, and I don't know. But if you say something like, "Hey, this mandate for masks," I think you're giving people some false hope that masks are going to save the day when you can't gauge it. So why don't we add some other things in there? Education, look at what the issue is instead of just simply one thing i mean finding out the actual stats is what like the actual numbers and data and what you just cited about japan um for some reason it boggles yeah. my mind that people do yeah. they want to they want to follow the places that normally lie about stuff on <laughs> like china and yeah like and then when somebody who has no reason sweden i don't know what reason sweden has to lie like i can't think of one um I can't think of anything in the news, but for some reason, places like that and the Japan thing, this is the first I've really heard about it. They, they seem to want to discount those things right there as well. It's, and then they come up with excuse and they move on to the next subject. Well, hold on. Let's maybe let's see what Sweden and Japan did and try to learn some things out of what, how they handled the, the whole process. Yes. In fact, and I think, Sweden gets so much hatred, so much hatred. And I, I just, I really don't get it. Um, I, I think it remains to be seen how Sweden fares. And, you know, there's still, there's still a lot of other countries that are, are adding cases and adding deaths. And Sweden is, I think today they had no deaths. And a couple, I, I think as of yesterday or the day before, Australia had more cases than Sweden. And so, you know, we don't, the, the race isn't over. 
And so I think people called Sweden as the loser a little early. I mean, it remains – I think it remains to be seen. And, and I think what's also interesting is a lot of times we just paint with these big brushes. But we sometimes we got to get more granular. And we have to look at – like, when you look at Sweden, they did so well um, in the last month or so or two months, and, and when, when their chief epidemiologist was asked kind of what, what did they do different, and, he, and what he, he explained was that they gradually realized that their problem was nursing homes. And when they fixed that problem and, and, and cases uh, dried up there, the entire kind of um, direction of their pandemic improved dramatically. And now they're to the point where they don't have any deaths. So, you know, sometimes you've got to be like, because that way you can learn. You can, because when you just paint with a big brush, Sweden bad, Australia good, it's not helpful. And, and I, I'm just sort of sick of the whole, like, you have to pick a side. You know, you're on the, you know, the U.S. is the worst. You know, Sweden is, is, is demonic. And like, there's just these kind of weird, almost religious affiliations and I just don't get it. I mean, I think we're all, we should all be kind of trying to collaborate to figure things out. And like, I think, you know, when you look at these nations more carefully, you see insights that you miss if you paint with a broad brush. And, and I just, I'm like, it's sad to me too that the, some of the most uh, well-followed figures, dude, they're just blowhards, man. They just get on there and they just, they just bullshit and they just attack each other. You know, and it's, it's just, it's demoralizing. And you see some of these guys with like half a million followers or a couple hundred that, and they're just saying nonsense to get likes. And it's like, dude, people's lives are at stake. You're a smart dude. You're educated. You can do better than this bullshit that you know, you know, is just a cheap shot. Like the whole cheap shot culture is what I hate about Twitter. Oh, Yeah. That that is a, right, but I mean, there, there, here's the thing about the schools, and we'll, we can go back to yeah. that, which is why, yeah, one thing, and maybe you can, maybe you've read some things on this as well, but like the thing that really concerns me is that a lot of parents nowadays are relying on the public school system for their socialization for their kids. So like, we're real busy, yep. and the social part is so important, and I can tell you how I, I, I know that from not a doctor perspective, but being homeschooled myself growing up, right? My parents did a great job of getting me out there and like putting me out on my own socialization with my peers, uh, lots of different situations. They, I mean, I really didn't know the difference between public and homeschool, right? But that I see the kids that were homeschooled, and this isn't slamming them at all, but the ones that were like more sheltered and, and uh, like the kids, they could be, like different and weird and not really understand the way the world works. And it really messes with like, it really messes with the social aspect of like their head and understanding. And, and so like you see these people on Twitter blowing up right now because we've all been in quarantine and everybody's just like going yes. off the rails and stuff. And I really think a lot of it has to do with lack of legitimate socialization between yes. humans. Yes. I agree. In fact, I think um, for a lot of people, the, the, the whole quarantine, especially people who've taken it very seriously, I mean, some of the psychological 
costs are serious and damaging. And for some children, they're depressed, um, you know, uh, and it's, it's a serious problem. Like humans are social creatures. We're, we're not designed, um, you know, to be isolated. Whether you believe in a God or you believe in evolution, we, we certainly didn't evolve to be isolated. Uh, and if you believe in God, we're created in the image of, of a personal God. And, you know, we're, we're social creatures. It's our essential nature. It is unnatural. It is insane, actually. Like, literally insane to contemplate, you know, a, a protracted, indefinite isolation. Um, it's, it's ridiculous. It, it makes no... And you don't... And, and, and the reality is the country that did the best in the whole world at managing so far didn't really adopt this kind of draconian lockdown. Um, and so... We got to step back. That country is Japan. That's what I'm referring to. And so I just don't see that, number one, I don't think we need to. to and number two, I don't really understand how we even think it's possible. Like there's this saying in philosophy that what you should do presupposes what you can do. In other words, if you can't do something, it makes no sense to say you should. Like, Let's say, right, you say, oh, you should date Selma Hayek. No, I can't. I mean, what, what, we're going to sit here and debate whether I should do it. If we can't isolate indefinitely forever until, until there's a vaccine. We can't. So why are we wasting time? Let's figure out solutions that work. For example, let's protect the most vulnerable. Let's and see if they can help us spend more time with each other. Let's spend times outdoors. You know, I think the, the, dis, the distinction between indoor and outdoor seems to be very, you know, let's find unity in society and, and let's make some, some risk, uh, you know, balancing decisions. For, for some younger people, they should be meeting and mingling. And the risk to them is so low that especially if they can insulate themselves from transmitting to say their elderly relatives, I mean, it's better for them socially, psychologically, and the risk to them is very low from the disease. And I don't think there's anything wrong with, with acknowledging this and, and empowering people to make decisions. You know, the response is, oh, well, then they're going to get it and they're going to give it to grandma and then grandma's going to die. If the, if the concern is protecting grandma, well, well, let's find ways to shield grandma. But why do we need to quarantine granddaughter or grandson? I, I, I don't, I'm not seeing, you know, the, and, and in fact, the, the irony is that the same people, they're pretty cool with, you know, my cousin showing up in the middle of the pandemic to fix their internet. So, you know, they, they're cool with what they need for their stay-at-home, work-from-home life. Oh, yeah, we got to make exceptions for internet. Um, you know, I need a haircut. You know, they're, they're willing to make exceptions, but then they, they kind of flip and they get on their high horse. And it's like, well, we all need to lock down. And, you know, young people, and they shame young people for going to the beach, which is ridiculous. Um, you know, now I'm just rambling. But anyway, yeah, I do agree with you 
socializing, psychology, you know, there's, there are a lot of dimensions to what's going on. Well, if you've ever been to a beach, like I grew up on the coast, I lived, yeah. you know, spent my own, almost my entire life, like on a beach, hanging out by the water, the ocean, fishing. Right. You can, you where where did those, you grow up? Uh, right next to South Padre Island. Oh, cool. So you see those overhead pictures of like beaches, right? And yeah. You, you see all these tents and all these chairs and they go, oh my gosh, look at these people. Man, go to a beach. When have you ever been to a beach where you're rubbing elbows to the person next to you? Almost right. never. Like, right. actually, when right. you go to a beach, people want their little space. Like, they have their little space that's theirs there. that everybody respects. And that's the way, it's like, probably 99% of the time, that's the way it is when you go to the beach. So the beach is actually one of the best places to go because you have the salt water, the vitamin D, you're, you know, you're outdoors. Yep. It's, it's peaceful. You have all these different things that, it, that it's good for you. And so taking away that, I mean, that's just people who don't normally go down there and hang out at the beach. It's kind of like anybody, like when you're trying to make a rule, you see that picture. And I see how people can see that from the outside and go, right. oh my gosh, the beaches are causing this crazy transmission. You go, actually, man, if you go down there, nah, it's not that way at all. Exactly. Yeah, I could. See, I grew up in Miami, so I have the same uh, reaction. And, and the truth is that the science really seems to support that beaches are among the safer places for people to, to gather. It's, in fact, I would say, and it's probably my biggest pet peeve, is beach shaming. And just kind of the whole, like, it almost feels like a puritanical, like, oh, my God, these people are having fun. How dare they? <laughs> and there's this one guy in Florida uh, who dresses up as a grim reaper. And he shames and scares people on beaches. And, you know, I, he's, he's a fairly successful lawyer. And I, my sense is he's doing it for attention. And I, I just really don't understand why there's not more um outcry at this guy because if you think about it it's kind of like you know okay if you're if you don't give young people condoms you know, well maybe they're gonna abstain if that's what you want but but probably they're not so similarly with the beach if you're shunting people off the beaches in miami well they're probably gonna hang out indoors <laughs> and so it's actually counterproductive from a transmission point of view to shame people from engaging in lower risk activities because see it assumes that the assumption is that the alternative is they're going to go lock themselves in a closet well that's not going to happen and so yeah beach shaming irks me for a lot of reasons and it does seem to stem from a kind of annoying sanctimonious self-righteousness um but anyway uh aaron it was really good to talk to you unfortunately i i probably have to get going Oh, no problem, man. Thank yeah. you for giving me your time. That's awesome. Um, I will put in the show notes, where can they find you on Twitter? Give everybody your handle so that uh, let them know where they're at and where they can find all these awesome papers and write-ups that you have. Awesome. Hey, nice to meet you. Good luck to you and your family with everything. Awesome, man. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, Newman, for coming on. I really appreciate it and appreciate your time and putting up with the technical difficulties. And until the next one, see ya.